Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with our frequent guest, Time Washington correspondent Phil Elliott. He also is the author of Time's weekday newsletter, The DC Brief. In this episode, we talk about the current chaos in the Republican Party and the power of President Trump after leaving the White House. Phil, the last time we talked was before the election, um, the election and its aftermath, January 6th, all that's transpired. This time I want to focus on the Republican Party and the GOP and what's going on. Uh, from an outsider's point of view, it appears to be chaos. Um, is that accurate? It's no more chaos than it's been for the last half decade or so. Uh, the Republican Party is one of constant reinvention and perpetual tension inside of it. This is a party that, you know, I, I remember being in Iowa in 2011 and Michelle Bachman had won the Iowa caucuses and forced mainstream, pretty bland governor Tim Pawlenty out of the race. I mean, this is a party that likes to constantly test itself and see how far it can go. Of course, Michelle Bachman went on to win none of the contests um, in the 2012 primary calendar, but she she extracted her pound of flesh from Governor Pawlenty. Um, ultimately, they wound up with Mitt Romney, and four years later, they wound up with Donald Trump. This is the Republican Party is just it, it is at its best when it's fighting itself, that it's constantly trying to figure out who it is, what its constituency is, and what its prescription for the future could be. Um, you, now that that used to be the history of the Democrats. Oh, don't 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 discount Democrats' appetite for disarray. All right. Okay. <laughs> let, let, there's that there's that legendary phrase, I'm not a member of any political party, I'm a Democrat. A Democrat, that's yeah, right. That that's that still holds true. That's not saying the Democrats have their acts together. It's that both parties um have this this appetite for reinvention. Um that I mean, remember after the 2012 loss of Mitt Romney, the Republican Party put its gray hairs together and said figure out what went wrong. And they came up with what is what we all know as the autopsy, the GOP's growth and opportunity project. And then the party went and did the exact opposite of what that prescription was and nominating Donald Trump. The party is now at a moment where, you know, the house is burned down. Um, and what is the, what, what is the Phoenix going to look like that rises from it? And you're seeing a lot of really strong, 
arguments made throughout the Republican Party. I mean, this is now the party of Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Liz Cheney. I mean, this is you cannot have more divergent personalities and policy views than those four. And yet they, they are, in their own ways, tentpoles of what the modern Republican Party stands for. So let's talk about who's in power, though. Um, you know, I, I read a column today uh, saying uh, Trump is still calling the shots and it's Trump's base that still is dictating policy. Yet we hear Mitch McConnell at least sniffing around the edges of maybe uh, going against some of that philosophy or at least some of that rhetoric. Uh Talk about the the relationship between those two as it relates to the future of the Republican Party. Yeah, so my understanding and my reporting, I should say, is that McConnell and Trump have not spoken since the election. That they ha- there's absolutely no goodwill left between them. Trump got his blank check um, from the majority then majority leader McConnell. Um, McConnell got his judges on the on the federal bench. It, truly, more than any presidency, the federal bench remade in McConnell's image will dictate this country's um, laws for a generation, um, and cannot be um, underestimated. That is truly Mitch McConnell's legacy more than anything, um, and he's and he's proud of that. That is that is what he set out to do. He accomplished it. Mission accomplished. Um, McConnell is starting to hint that he is out of patience with the, with the Trump um, wing of the party, that he is openly calling uh, QAnon folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene um, a problem for the party, that it's a it, cancer, it, right? A, a, a poison. Cancer, poison. To- um, it's toxic. It will drag down um, an entire slate of candidates in 2022 if they're not careful. Um, and he want, he he and his like-minded mainstream Republican allies are saying, you know, enough of this. You know, it's not worth the headache. It's all downside, very little upside, and just wants to be done with it. Trump, however, hasn't um, given the green light for that yet. That Trump Trump does um, feed off of positive reinforcements, and you know, for better or for worse, well, for worse. The QAnon folks uh, still believe that um, Trump was the rightful winner, and Democrats are running a cabal of child molesting pedophiles who are murderers and all sorts of bananas theories. Cannibals um, too. Uh, cannibals. I mean, yeah. there, there's some just horrible things dealing with Clinton's former deputy chief of staff, Huma Abedin, in there. That it's just it's just noxious um, in that space, and yet. It finds its way to Trump. Trump is still, I mean, 74 million people did vote for President Trump's reelect. It was a record for a sitting president um, to get for, for in terms of raw votes. It didn't compare to Biden's 80 million, but that's it's still an accomplishment that cannot be overlooked. And a lot in the Republican Party still see. Trump and not McConnell as the rightful leader of this party. Now you're looking at some interesting um, intra-Republican play that last week we saw Ronna Romney McDaniel, the chair of the RNC, 
one of the longest serving chairs, I should point out, in Republican history, um, say that they will not clear the field if Trump wants to run in 2024, that it's going to be it's a free for all, um, which indicates that there are some in the party um, who are ready to turn the page. Keep in mind, Ronna McDaniel, he used to be known as Ronna Romney McDaniel back when the Romney name mattered in Republican politics, um, was Trump's handpicked RNC chair that he installed her. And she went from Ronna Romney McDaniel, chair of the Republican Party of Michigan, um, to Ronna McDaniel. Like she, she basically had to disavow her uncle Mitt Romney, and and like got in like Twitter fights over him to stay in Trump's good graces. The fact that she's clearing the field for a potential challenge to Trump says that there are some inside the party who are ready to bow to the reality that Trump was a four-year detour and not truly um, the superhighway of the GOP. Let's look at the House a, a, a moment, and and I, I'm trying to find out whether it is a microcosm of what's going on in the Republican Party or whether it's the aberration. We have Kevin McCarthy, the Republican uh, leader, uh, disavowing Trump, saying that he was in part responsible for the the insurrection on January 6th, but then going and, and genuflecting to, to Trump at Mar-a-Lago. We've got Liz Cheney, who's been steadfast, uh, but attempts to get her out of the leadership. We, we then have, you know, uh, the uh, new uh, freshman congressman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, a QAnon spokesperson. So it, is the House an aberration, or should we be looking at that as more of a microcosm than the Senate? You know, the House is a reflection of America. We may, we may hate the horror show, the freak show, the circus that is, but this is who America is. I mean, there have always been fringy members of Congress who get elected. I grew up in Jim Traffigan's district, and this was a guy who literally... Um, like was indicted for corruption time after time and kept getting reelected. Even well, even from a jail cell, he won something like thirty percent of the vote um, to go to go back to Congress while serving a, a prison sentence. That this, for, for this, our this, listeners, Jim Tra- Traffickant was a Democrat elected from the Youngstown. Uh, Ohio area, yeah. and and uh, had a spotty background at best. I mean, he was in many ways. Jim Traffickant was Tea Party before Tea Party existed. Like he 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 was I, just a point of privilege here. He would do insane speeches on the floor of the House, and then then scream, "Beam me up, Scotty!" Like it's like he was from a different planet. It was phenomenal, phenomenal political theater to watch, um, but. You're, you're right that the House is at this moment a really scattershot view, scattershot representation of American politics. But that is as it should be in a direct democracy. That you know you get one one district, one vote, um, and this is a, this is a this is a cross section of who we are as a country. That there are enough people who are QAnon adherents to elect a member of Congress. The same way there are enough members who want. Medicare for all and uh, BDS on Israel, and you know, there, if you if you look across this country, and that's what makes America truly great, is that everyone can have their say um, on their on their pet projects. And really, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene um, represents her district, and you know, you you could you could try to um, Democrats can send, spend all the money they want trying to get her out of there. It's still a Republican district that has enough QAnon adherence to send. You you can ditch her, but they're going to send back another QAnon person. That is just what that cor- that northwest corner of Georgia is. Um, it's the same way you're you're looking at. I know a lot of my Democratic friends are looking at trying to take out Madison Cawthorn, the 25 year old um, Republican from North Carolina. But it's like it, it's it's such a Republican district the way it has been gerrymandered that absent a truly independent and objective redistricting effort in North Carolina, he's going to be in Congress as long as he wants to be. So if you're Mitch McConnell and you have seniority and you feel that you're sort of the grandfather of the Republican Party uh, and should be its new leader, uh, you've got the House uh, you know, going in, I think, could be called disarray, uh, infighting, uh, skirmishing, however you would want to phrase it. It's going crazy. You still have the Trump base uh, threatening violence in, in some areas. Um, what does he do? What does he do now? Well, the thing for the thing to explain all of Mitch McConnell's actions is the accumulation in defense of power. Mitch McConnell did not expect to be the minority leader. He is no longer the majority leader. Democrats have a 50 vote plus Vice President Harris majority. It is a narrow majority, but it is still a majority um, in terms of voting power. For Mitch McConnell, he's looking ahead at 2022, and he's got a really tough map. That already we saw Senator Portman of Ohio announce he won't seek another term. He just said, This place is messed up. I am done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm good. Um, And then you've got folks like Chuck Grassley in Iowa. Um, who are in cycle? It's it's not a good. There there are potentially six senators, six Republican senators who won't be seeking re-election. It's it's tough to see a path back to the majority, even with even keeping even retaining those six seats. Um, you're you're then going to have to pick off senators who are in cycle who might not be as um, vulnerable. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough map for Mitch McConnell. That is why he is really freaking out about a lot of these, um, um, flare ups, um, coming out of the house, um, that it's, it's, um, it could really hurt the Republican brand, especially when you've got folks like Marco Rubio who are in cycle in Florida, who might end up with a primary challenger, um, Todd Young in Indiana is probably safe, but is Rand Paul safe in Kentucky? Probably. But, I mean, Roy Belunge is in cycle in Missouri. I mean, it's, it's a Republican trending state, but, you know, not that long ago we had Claire McCaskill out of there. Right. And then if you're, if, you're a, if you're a Republican looking to pick off um, incumbents, I mean, New Hampshire, maybe Maggie Hassan, maybe, you know, um, Cortez Masto out of Nevada. Um, you're looking at states that aren't that rich, so you've got to defend and maybe pick off one or two. I mean, Mark Kelly's up on in, in this this coming cycle. Uh, uh, he, you know, that's that's a potential. But you know, Arizona has trended 
further and further away from the John McCain Republican Party and more into the Sarah Palin Republican Party in Arizona. All right. So we toss into this mix an impeachment trial that's supposed to start February 9th. Um, We had one vote in the Senate already uh, where Republicans pretty much held fast to say it was unconstitutional, but they didn't have enough votes to to carry the day on that. Um, Talk about what's going to happen there and what influence that will have on the GOP. If you're the likes of Mitch McConnell or a mainstream Republican, you hope that the impeachment trial of President Trump has no has no impact on what it means to be a Republican. For no a lot legs. Of, no a, legs. A lot of Republicans just see this as, okay, we have to do this. Let's get through this as quickly as possible. Please make no headlines that you know we're not going to ban the president from running again through this vehicle. Um, it's just politically not worth the headache that it will incur on incumbent Republicans, but they're also not going to go out there and defend him. That said, there are a handful of people um, who will carry water for the president. Lindsey Graham is one of them. Um, and I'm just reminded of an SNL skit from this time a year ago, um, because SNL is the great window into our political <laughs> culture, um, was that there was this imagined, uh, there was a skit on SNL, like, hey, do you really think the president didn't do these bad things? And Kate McKinnon, as Lindsey Graham says, yeah, I actually looked and decided I can't win re-election if I don't stand with the president. And that's about as clear-eyed um, look at American politics right now inside the Republican Party that you're going to find, that it's going to be about self-preservation. They're not looking to preserve the party. They're looking to just survive the Trump um, era and hope to put this in the rearview mirror. It's, it's, it's pretty clear what is going to happen during the impeachment trial. Uh, more more so than it was during the tri- his first impeachment trial a year ago, um, and you know it's it's going to it's it's a it's a cleaner case now than it was a year ago. The the charge is much easier to understand. All the all the characters are none of the characters are oligarchs, um, and it's a clear this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and you don't need to understand Burisma or foreign aid or ambassadors or political hires. It's Trump gave a speech, people followed what the speech said, bad stuff happened. It's clear-cut, Republicans don't want to risk a fight with the president over it or the president's supporters, and it's going it's, it's to be a, a pretty quick uh, and clinical um, trial. It, unless, bar, barring some bombshell or Trump insists on testifying or some stupid move like that, um, this is going to move pretty quickly. It's going to move pretty quickly. I I would agree from from my perspective. However, um, the, the lasting ramifications of this, if the Republicans don't take some action to hold the president accountable for what happened on January sixth, what does that do to their brand? What does that do to? What does that give the Democrats coming up in? 2022 and 2024. No, I mean, it's certainly going to be weaponized. It's 
not it's not a good look for the Republican Party, the party of law and order, to be standing in defense of insurrectionists. I mean, you talk to members of Congress and their staffers, they are conducting this trial at the scene of a crime, and they themselves were the intended victims. There is going to be a body of research um, in psychology, sociology, cultural anthropology about these 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 individuals are are living through trauma. This is a PTSD situation that is ongoing where people are going back to work at the crime scene where people had entered their workplace, their office building, and tried to kill them. That this is not a good place mentally for any of these staffers, for many of these members of Congress, that they are going through and they every single day that they walk through those grand doors of that temple to democracy, they are being triggered. And it is not going to be good for them in the long term. It's not going to be good for the country in the long term. And that if this goes unpunished, that is going to that is going to have some emotional effect, some psychological effect that I don't think we've considered to a responsible level. I, I think that there is just a lot of um, it's the same way you don't go back. I mean, sites of mass crime, mass shootings, um, if possible, people avoid them. It's unavoidable. We're not building a new U.S. capital. I mean, just not happening. But these these individuals who even more even more than politics are human. They're being they're being forced every day to go through those doors, and to varying degrees relive that trauma. Um, and even today, they uh, issued three hundred and fifty of them issued a letter asking the Senate to convict. Uh, on in, on impeachment, uh, that's sort of unheard of for staff members. Staff, if you're if you're the if you're the headline, if you're the story, you're doing something wrong. If you're staff, and for staff to come out this strongly and say, "Look, this is enough. We, this is too much. We've got you got to hold this guy accountable." Um, th- I mean, there are a number of number of Republican staffers um, who have not gone back to work. They're just not going. They're working from home. And they're looking for new jobs. That this was, this was, this was not what they signed up for. They signed up to be economists. They signed up to be speechwriters. Um, they signed up to be policy advisors. They did not sign up to be human shields. That for a lot of people, a lot of my friends who had to barricade themselves in their offices um, and turn off their cell phones and so they didn't vibrate um, and cause attention. I mean. Th- the, the the offices around the Capitol are known as hideaways. They're the unmarked doors where, sure. um, depending on seniority, lawmakers literally hide away. Some of them are closets. Some of them are like Ted Kennedy's was this grand, basically, apartment. Um, but those hideaways became actual hiding spots for members of Congress and their staffs trying to get away, um, complicating this through all of it. We're a handful of Republicans who refuse to wear a mask. Um, if you haven't listened, watched it, listened to it, um, Congressman Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's first person accounting of this is just harrowing, where she, she accounts for her day and said that she did not feel safe huddled with Republican members of Congress because she, one, she didn't feel that they were going to 
they would the, she didn't feel safe with them for a combination of political animus and a combination of they weren't wearing masks. I mean, this is this happened for hundreds and hundreds of members of Congress and their staffers. Um, it really is. It really was a traumatizing experience for a lot of them. So, if the Senate and the Republicans hold the the, the cards, because you have to have a sixty percent majority here to to uh, convict, and that's never been done, and and uh, the Democrats don't have it. So, uh, the Republicans hold the key. Obviously, they they are not going to vote to impeach. But that way, they uh, give a card to the Democrats that, hey, you're supporting this insurrection. You're supporting this lawlessness. You're supporting uh, the QAnons and and the Proud Boys and all these other uh, terrorist groups. Uh, Do the Republicans have an out with this? Can they frame it that it's unconstitutional? to uh, uh, convict a, a president who's already left office. They've already had a, a test vote on that. But is that how it will be framed? Yeah, I think more than the constitutional issue, you're seeing this play out already, is they want to conv- convict the president who's no longer in office and remove him from office when he's no longer in office. It's, they're, they're wasting their time going trying to go after a guy who's they want to remove a guy from office. He's already out of office. What's the point? And that is how they're they're casting this. It might end up working. I mean, it is. It's not. It's not a complicated argument about constitutionality, and you know, you don't need to argue the precedent set by a war secretary who resigned, who raced the White House to resign on his way to impeachment. Right. That actually happened. That is, we're we're actually using it that as an example. Um, I lo- I love history. Um, But Republicans can just say Democrats who won the White House still want to keep going after the president and it's still a witch hunt and to what end? He's already out of office. What more do you want? All right. But then on the other side of this, let me take the argument to another level. And that is you have the mainstream, if there is such a thing, mainstream Republican uh, who has voted now twice that not convict the president for perhaps impeachable offenses? Uh, does that embolden Trumpism? And so, are by taking no action, do the Republicans embolden the devil from within? Yeah, that's a very real risk. Um, it's also a risk that. Um, I mean, looking ahead, if it's not going to be Trump, is it going to be someone like Trump? I mean, is it going to be a sophisticated politico um, who channels Trumpism? Is it going to be someone like Josh Hawley? I mean, that, that there there is this looming um, uncertainty about what comes next, that if you excuse this, what's to say you don't excuse the next? Um, we went through this with Bill Clinton. That if you will if you will excuse this affair, what is it to say that the White House doesn't become a swingers club for the next guy? And in that, George W. Bush ran so much of that 2000 campaign on restoring dignity to the White House, and that you were able to weaponize Bill Clinton's non-conviction into a winning political message. 
it, the question is, how do you weaponize, hey, I'm not a white supremacist, into a political slogan? And that's where we are. And that's that's a really disturbing place where, hey, yeah. I'm not a white supremacist actually needs to be said. And we're not sure how to sell that politically. Like normally it'd be like, hi, I'm a human. I have a, I, I breathe air is, is the equivalent of, hey, I'm a politician. I'm not a white supremacist. Like this is now, a, this is now a, a statement that actually, you have to figure out how to say it. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. So if if the Republicans don't convict, and, and they won't, uh, and we're talking about uh, the future here, uh, will they try to say, okay, Trumpism is going to fade. If we just ignore it, leave it alone, it'll, it'll go away. Uh, it, it's got a short shelf life, you know, it, it, it'll go away. Or... Somebody will do something violent again and resurrect all, all of these bad feelings uh, about it. We just have to put our heads down and, and deal with policy issues in a traditional Republican-Democratic debate. Is that going to happen? I don't know. And that's hoping something goes away generally isn't a strategy. Um, like, but I think it, it is with some. It, it is with some, and hoping you know, ignoring that you know, ignoring that tumor on your dog is not going to make your dog automatically get better just because you're not taking the dog to the vet. Right. That there is you, you can you it might make you feel better to pretend you know Fido doesn't have you know a giant cyst on his leg, but it doesn't. It, it's not very few times does the body heal itself. And the body politic right now, it has this underlying condition that they that so many in the Republican Party are are afraid to confront, and it's not for um, cowardice; it's out of calculation that there is per, a perception that there are sufficient numbers of Trump-like Republicans in the party that crossing them will yield problems. And you're, it's not going to go, it has not gone away after January 20th. We saw it recently at the Republican Party of Arizona. They voted to censure Cindy McCain, the gov, Republican governor, Doug Ducey, for being insufficiently supportive of Trump. They reelected Kelly Ward as its chairwoman, who is a twice-failed Senate candidate, 
um, who is in Trump's mold through and through. And, you know, this is, this is who the Republican Party leadership says it's, it's going to be. And granted, Arizona is its weird freak show state. Um, I, I love its politics for this. <laughs> um, that it's the state where that, you know, they censured John McCain when he was living for being right. insufficiently Republican. <laughs> right. Like this is just a party that goes, has no problem going off the rails. Um, but it, it, it's a microcosm of the Republican party more broadly that, you know, Rob Portman of Ohio decided to hang it up because he's just done dealing with these the, the political um, trouble. I mean, you and I will not be surprised to see um, governor DeWine of Ohio face a primary because of the mask order. Oh, and I'm you, sure he will. I'm sure he will. And yeah. you're looking at, um, you're, you're seeing this throughout the country. You're, you're, the, the Trump children have vowed retribution on the lawmakers who did not stand with Trump. Already we saw Trump accolade Matt Gates had to Wyoming to challenge Liz Cheney. Um, the fact, the, the day you would ever think of a Cheney being um, insufficiently conservative, um, well, Vice President Cheney or Liz Cheney, I should say, being insufficiently conservative. It's just, it's mind-blowing that that is where um, the party is. The party needs to figure out what it, what, who it is and what it wants to be. And no, no polling, no focus groups can solve that. They actually need to sit down and have that conversation. Um, as much as Republicans don't want to have the conversation, there is a very real... Um, there's a very real problem inside the party about who it is and its identity. And the conversation about, you know, Trump starting a second party is very problematic um, if you're a mainstream Republican, but maybe that is a conversation worth having. Sort of a Teddy Roosevelt kind of approach. Yeah. That, I mean, you can, you can, the idea of the days of the Republican party being the big tent are very quickly coming um, to an end if if the per, if the people holding up the tent poles um, are also setting the tent poles on fire. So so let me toss in another variable here, though, because we've been talking about Republican office holders and policymakers. You know, let's talk about the average Republican voter. You know, from what I've read, and perhaps you can attest to the accuracy or not. The Republicans lost a lot of registered voters who disavowed their Republican Party after January 6th. Now, whether that's short-term or long-term, they said, I can no longer be a Republican under this kind of uh, circumstance. Right. So, so what about the Republican voter? Where are those people going to go? Well, this is an NPR has and its member stations have been doing great reporting on this. So credit where that's due. I <laughs> lo love me some NPR stations. Um, the, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I'm with you, Tom. It's um, I mean, you're, you're seeing thousands of voters shed their Republican identity um, saying that this is just this is too much. It's bridged too far. That said, they can that they can do that now. But when it comes time for the primaries, are they really going to continue to stay on the outside and let other people determine the nominees of the party that they, at least until January 6th, had pledged allegiance to? Or do they get back involved? 
and this is where the party party selection party selected nominees are always um, a sensitive spot for both parties. It's you can say I can't stand them, I can't believe they're doing it, but am I going to stand aside and let someone else pick the nominee, or am I going to get involved? Am I going to vote in a partisan primary and make and figure out who I want? as the nominee of a party that I identify with. You see this every every two years where it's people rush at the last minute to join a political party when one, when they don't love the, the potential nominee. Right. Or or two, um can meddle in someone else's primary, to, to for lack of a better term. You're never going to see as many people wearing Reagan shirts voting in Democratic primaries in the District of Columbia as you do on primary day here. That it's just, here in D.C., it's a majority Democratic city. Right. The Republicans the Republicans aren't going to win. But a lot of Republicans register as Democrats for that window to have a say in either getting someone less liberal nominated or to nominate some freak show to embarrass the Democrats. You see that in congressional races, too. Um, you see it in presidential primaries. I remember Operation Chaos that Rush Limbaugh tried to plant in 2012, trying to get Republicans to vote in Democratic primaries. Or 2008, excuse me. Um, I'm old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you can see that medley. Um, the question is whether these offended Republicans decide to completely check out of politics um, or whether they say, you know what, I had my protest fund. It's time for me to come back in the fold and try to, I don't like what happened. How do we fix it? They're even checking out of conservative news organizations, looking at the latest ratings. Fox is number three now. Well, it's tough to understand why. I mean, I was watching Fox last night and Tucker Carlson had a segment where Brett Favre, noted cheesehead, was extolling the virtues of eating more cheese. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That was an actual segment last night on Tucker Carlson's show. They're obviously trying to figure out which way to go as as well. Um, So with all this being said, what does this mean to Joe Biden and his agenda? Obviously, before the inauguration, he kept his head down. He was, uh, at least uh, to the public, uh, doing business, uh, trying to restore some dignity to the White House, uh, trying to talk about unity. Uh, what does all of this Republican chaos do for him? It gives Biden both an opportunity and possibly an insurmountable challenge. Um, the Republican disunity doesn't give Biden any one Republican to negotiate with, that there is no Trent Lott figure that you can summon to the White House and hash out a deal. Biden can get Mitch McConnell on the line, and they are they have they're talking regularly. They they're not friends, but they're friendly. They both respect the Senate to a great degree. But McConnell can't bring everyone along unilaterally. I mean, McConnell was on January sixth, even before the riot, before the insurrection, telling his Republican senators, fall in line, deal in facts, don't nurse these grievances. This is a this is a standard vote. Let's get this done and move on. And not people didn't heed him. And then the riot happened. People died. 
you're not you don't have a unilateral figure in McConnell. McCarthy has um, less of control on the House right now. He's facing his own set of leadership challenges. Um, there is not a Biden can't call two people and get the Republicans to fall in line. That's just not how the Republican Party is. You, you know, Obama could call Harry Reid, and Reid would more or less get things in line. No one has ever doubted Nancy Pelosi's ability and talent and skill in getting her caucus to fall in line when it needs to. Um, Republicans just don't have that level of unity. But it's also the real challenge here for Biden is that, you know, as much as he preaches unity, the country isn't uniting. And there's an interesting set of numbers out of the Pew Research Center out this week that really caught my eye and startled me a little bit that before for the last for this and the four previous um, transitions Hugh asked a question that kind of tells you where the country is it's will people like yourself gain influence or lose influence with the incoming administration and for the first time since 1993 more Americans say they will lose influence under Biden than say they would gain it wow so 24% of Americans said that they would gain influence under Biden. 36% say they expected to lose influence. And that wow. is just a striking alienation of America that back in 1993, um, just 22% thought they would lose influence. And now it's 36% said they would lose influence. And this is just, go, and it's been a steady trend line of people thinking that people like them, we're going to lose power in Washington. And that is a, a disturbing trend line for a couple of reasons. Most notably, it means that they think the system is already stacked against them and that they're going to continue losing power. And yes, this has been a terrible year and there's no reason for optimism in America right now that this is, pessimism is to be forgiven. It is our national anthem at this point. Um, this has been a year of terrible headlines and news um, from science to the economy to social justice, um, across the board. Across the board, but when you got a fifty, you, you've got you know a, by a thirty-six to twenty-four spread, you think that this is, you're not you're not you're going to lose influence, and that Washington doesn't care about people like you. That's a really tough place to start out from if you're Joe Biden, and that's that's why his message of unity is it, it, there. There's a potency to it. Um, political potency to it, but it's also out of necessity that if he can't, if he's starting this administration with everyone, think, with so many people thinking Washington is rigged against them personally, that's a tough place. That's a tough hole to crawl out of. And it adds to the alienation that we've seen and the alienation from both the uh, right and the extreme right and alienation from the progressives as well within the Democratic Party. It, it's it's alienation across the political spectrum. Yeah, and that's not good for a democracy that requires buy-in, that this American experiment only works when there's a credibility associated with the practice of democracy, that there has to be some ownership stake in it. It's, it's why low voting rates are so... Um, problematic for this country, that if you want to have legitimacy, you need to have wide participation and a faith in the system. And for the last, I don't know, six years, 
The figure of Donald Trump has done everything he can to delegitimize the system. He spent the last seventy he spent the seventy-seven days between him losing the election and him leaving Washington working systematically to delegitimize the exercise of democracy. So it's very little wonder that Joe Biden is coming to power, has come to power, with a giant, you know, question mark over his legitimacy in some voters' minds. That you know, he did win. Facts say he did. Numbers say he did. Courts say he did. But that question of legitimacy makes it really tough for him to pull this country together and get much done. He's already starting out with, you know, he, he, he is not, the 50-50 Senate gives him some leverage, but it's still, he's, that, that gives him one bill a year he can do through reconciliation. And even then, there are a lot of caveats about what can be stripped out of it as being extraneous, if it spends money outside of the 10-year window. Um, there are, he can't do everything through 50 plus one. He's going to have to come to, most things require 60 votes, which means he's going to have to work across the aisle. But as we've seen already, there, there were only five votes in the Senate from Republicans to convict on that initial procedural vote. Republicans need to, you need to get to 17 to get to the, the, the two thirds required to convict him in the Senate. And you've got to get 10 to get to the 60 vote threshold uh, to get, overcome a filibuster. That's a tough climb um, for Joe Biden, who's already starting with people, with the public thinking, you know, Joe Biden doesn't care about people like them. What, quick question though, if you were advising him, it would seem to me, if I were advising him, I would say, go for something that uh, will have impact immediately beyond the COVID uh, situation. Go for infrastructure. That was something talked about under Trump, never delivered. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Infrastructure Week. Um, that the joke was always like, it's Infrastructure Week. We're going to do Infrastructure right. this Week. And we but, but, never got But that's it. something that could bring Joe Manchin along. It could bring all of these people and, and, and certainly some Republican crossovers on that. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden's, a, I, I'm not going to pretend to be an advisor to Biden, but the people who actually are advising Biden are telling him, take the low-hanging fruit. You've got a very short window here um, to get something done before things turn into, you know, midterm circus, um, before people start going to Iowa, um, laying the groundwork for 2024, that you have, you know, it's it, there's, it, we create it as 100 days of like the first 100 days but really, that's about all you got. And you've got maybe two things you can get done in the first year. One of them is obviously going to be COVID. And it's going to be the way it's shaping up. It's going to be, it's going to take several bites of the apple to get uh, the full, um, the, get, to get all the money out the door. Um, we've already spent $4 trillion through five different pieces of legislation. Biden's looking at another $2 trillion. Um, but that's really only going to be a down payment on what's going to end up ultimately being needed. Some Democrats are talking 10 to $12 trillion by the time we're out the door on this, which is just a mind-blowing number. Um, that doesn't leave a lot of political oxygen for much else. Infrastructure is something that they've talked about. The criminal justice reform is a space where you, you've got folks like legitimately Rand Paul is there in the sweet spot on uh, criminal justice reform. Um, 
I mean, he spent a lot of his, uh, when he was running for president, he spent a lot of time on that. Uh, Sincerely went to HBCUs. Um, I went with him to a lot of black community centers. Um, he, he legitimately wants to get something done on that. And there is a bipartisan appetite there. Um, there, you also have, you know, the environment that, you know, you've got folks like the chamber of commerce who believe hey, climate change is real. Um, you've got realtors who are saying, Hey, Miami is worth no money if it's underwater. Um, and you've got the national defense contractor set who are saying, Hey, the Pentagon does say climate change is a national security risk. Why, why, why can't people get together around that? And it's something Joe Biden campaigned on in a big way. I don't think there's any space where, you know, no, 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 no disrespect to our friends in academia, but Hey, college costs are through the roof. Student loan debt is bananas at this point. Um, you know, that, that can unite a bunch of people that no one likes their kids having college debt. No one likes their tuition bills being what they are. I know I don't like mine at this point. Um, but it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's, uh, there is a finite appetite for taking on big things and you've got to stack up a series of priorities. Um, Rahm Emanuel, when he was at the white house as chief of staff had a phrase that got weaponized against him, but he's not wrong that you never let a crisis go to waste. And so you're, you're looking right now at this COVID crisis and people are trying to figure out how to, you know, address it, but also, Hey, maybe a $15 out $15 an hour minimum wage increase could be part of it. Or, Hey, maybe let's do immigration reform. And it's in that moment where trying to get big things done, piggybacking on a crisis might end up poisoning the well for Biden going forward. And that that's the risk he's got to take. Well, uh, yes, what, you're ta- what you're talking about is uh, unity uh, around issues as opposed to just let's all, you know, hug and sing kumbaya. Yeah, I don't think anyone, I don't think Republicans would deny Joe Biden's ass- assessment that we've got a number of crises confronting America at once. You know, cr- uh, social justice, climate change, the economy, and COVID. It's a question of how much you want to, how much are you willing to acknowledge that there's an intersectionality there, um, and that there one feeds the other, feeds the other, and that maybe you can't deal with these things in silos. And sometimes you've got to, sometimes the climate denier needs to, you know, take one for the team and say, okay, we'll do money for vaccinations if we'll also prop up the seawall in Charleston. All right. I have two quick questions to end our conversation today. One is, uh, have we seen the last of major violent acts? Oh, no. I I don't think that that is going to go away anytime soon. Um, If we're talking about January 6th style insurrection, no. Um, I I went for a walk um, last week around the Capitol and there's still seven foot fencing um, with really tiny holes so you can't climb up it, um, and um, barbed wire on top of it. I mean, the Capitol Police are talking about making um, permanent walls around the Capitol complex and the White House complex permanent. Um, the the ellipse that space between the Washington Monument and the White House is closed um, for another month um, for fear of security risk. Um, the QAnon message boards are not slowing down. They are still riling people up. And, you know, 
January 6th captured the imagination of a lot of folks that, hey, if they could get into the U.S. Capitol, imagine what, what else, else we could do. do. Yeah. And that was, that was pretty, that wasn't, that was not organized by the, um, David Petraeus was not the planner on that, on that, no, on that no, siege. No. So if you can get it together with this short of a deadline, um, you, you could see it repeating. I mean, you saw the plot against Governor Whitmer in uh, Michigan, that they had right. staked out her house and planned bombs and kidnapping. And I mean, it's absolutely bananas. The, the, the lengths people will go to, to plan um, an insurrection or a coup. Um, you're, you're not going to see, you're, the, we haven't seen the last of it. Hopefully we've seen the most successful of it. Um, hopefully they never have as much success as they did on January 6th again, but you know, it, it has sparked a lot of dangerous, um, free thinking on, um, online. And that gets, if that ever operationalizes, it gets really scary really quickly. I also want to talk about your position with time. I know you're Washington correspondent, but you write something that I read religiously every day and sometimes comment back to you <laughs> within <laughs> 15 minutes of getting it. Uh, you you write something called the DC Brief. Yes. Talk about that and how people can get a hold of it. Sure thing. Thanks for the plug, Todd. And thank you for your notes. Um, back, I do, I do read them. Um, so the DC Brief is a daily newsletter. It's free um, from... Uh, the Washington Bureau of Time. I write it most days. Uh, you can. It's a just a, a almost. A, it's a reported column out of Washington where we take one idea or one event, one person, um, one interview, and translate it and why people outside of the Beltway should care about it. It's kind of a decoding of DC. That this is a look behind the curtain. Here's here's the headline, but here's why this is happening. Here's the backstory to it. Here's the implications for it. Um, the Pew uh, numbers that I was citing earlier um, are the topic of uh, uh, one of these uh, dispatches that um, went out. Um, where it's take a look at s uh, just a moment in Washington and make sense of why it matters. Um, we try to keep it conversational. It's not a lecture. It's not political. It's about politics, but it's not political. It's it's really grounded in really how I, when I call my grandmother in Northeast Ohio and she asks what's going on in Washington, it's that type of conversation that I'm trying to bring to a wider audience um, Monday through Friday. You can sign up for it at time.com slash DC brief. It's free. It's in your inbox. Um, usually, usually late afternoon. Um, I've worked with a great editor, Chris Damar, and we paint, we, we uh, spitball ideas and try to figure out, okay, what's going on and what don't we know about it? Um, it really is an opportunity for me to nerd out um, with a couple, you know, couple decades of experience uh, here in Washington and explain what is going on and why you should care and what it's Washington well, is doing right sometimes. It, it's well written. It's accessible. Uh, for people, you don't have to be a, a, a beltway inside the beltway freak to to understand it. Uh, it's really, really well written. So, with that being said, uh, not to give away any secrets, uh, what could we look coming up 
in D.C. brief. Well, we finally have rules of the Senate. Uh, the Senate has been operating ruleless uh, since the new class came in at the beginning of January. Um, so we finally have it, every 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 two years the Senate has to agree to rules. Um, we finally have rules. So there are going to be some peculiarities in the rules that I'm going to be explaining uh, when it comes to who gets staff, who gets offices, who gets to ring the gavel. Uh, we still have some confirmation hearings coming. Uh, It'll be very surprising if Joe Biden gets all of his nominees through without a sacrificial lamb. Uh, every cabinet has a handful that don't make it through. Biden has gotten lucky so far. None have uh, been rejected or withdrawn. Um, I, I, we're, coming up to, we're coming up on the end of the easy confirmations. So confirmations are going to be good. And then the uh, impeachment, that there is a, an opportunity to peel back the posturing and political theater of this impeachment trial in the Senate to explain, okay, here's why this person just did this. And it might not be as nefarious as you think. It might just be this person is really peculiar on this one particular issue, and it's in keeping with character. Um, so that is an opportunity for us to um, really just explain to you what we know about these lawmakers as much as we want to make them into cartoons or villains or heroes, they really are just quirky individuals. Normal people don't get elected to the Senate, and <laughs> every one of them is a tangle of weirdness. And uh, between me and uh, our, our team uh, who's been doing this with alongside me, there, there's some chances for us to just kind of put some of these senators on the couch and figure out, okay, why did they just do this? So I, I'd, I'd encourage you to sign up again, time.com slash DC brief. Uh, Phil, thanks as always for talking with us. We check in with you periodically. Uh, I wanted to let the dust settle a little bit with all, everything that was going on, but uh, thanks for talking with us today. Great to be back with you. Today, we've been talking with Phil Elliott, Washington correspondent for Time and the author of Time's weekday newsletter, The D.C. Brief. We've been discussing the current chaos in the Republican Party. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.